You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and it is raining outside, which is fantastic. We've had a long, uh, humid uh, uh, seven days or so, it would appear. Um, Fantastic lightning storms, we've had thunder and uh, we have had some rain. Uh, some parts of Melbourne have uh, inc- have been drenched in rain, and in other parts of Victoria they've had a, a suffit of rain. But uh, in other parts, it's been just a little bit uh, more um, discreet. Uh, but um, it, it may be cool. Uh, cool for a little while. Uh, actually, it's going to be hot again. But uh, enjoy, revel in the uh, touches of coolness that are coming off the rain today. Uh, today, we're going to get a backgrounder from peace activist Ellen uh, Griffiths on um, the Ukraine. Uh, and uh, it's a complicated situation in the Ukraine, much more complicated than uh, the mainstream media would like us to believe. Um, and uh, he in particular is um, interesting because he has got a family connection to the Ukraine. Uh, as he says, a large por- portion of his family tree were um, situated in the strategically important city of uh, Brazil, which I've probably mispronounced, um, which was then in the Ukraine in World War Two, and uh, most of his uh, family tree were killed by the Gestapo. And uh, as he said, he is standing there aghast that the West would allow Ukrainian collaborators in Hitler's Holocaust be venerated in today's modern Ukraine. Anyway, he discusses uh, some of the issues that are uh, developing in the Ukraine uh, behind the uh, mainstream media's uh, veil of um, uh American uh, warmongering, um, sabre-rattling effectively. That's what's going on. So it's a frightening period of time we're in. And uh, as Alan says, uh, it uh, uh, has a horrible uh, tinge of uh, potential nuclear war about it. Anyway, uh, we're going to follow that up with a conversation that I had with uh, the writer of a fantastic book called Democracy in Chains, the Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. It's written by uh, academic Nancy McLean, who gave me some time to discuss a fantastic book. You have to read it. It's uh, being handled by Scribe in Australia, and uh, it puts together the jigsaw puzzle of uh, this um, attack on democracy that we are seeing 
uh, in real time in America at this moment. We're going to follow that up with uh, a chat, uh, 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 a chat with Don Sutherland, uh, following on from uh, what uh, we were talking about last week. Uh, Actually, fantastic conversation with Don last week. Well-researched information into uh, why the rats, the rapid antigen tests, were not really available to Australia, even though we made them here. Um, And then a further look at uh, the uh, strange goings-on in regards to manufacturing policy in Australia. Uh, But before we go on, uh, some messages from... uh, our wonderful community out there. Melbourne Pride will be taking over Smith Street and Gertrude Street Precinct on Sunday the 13th of February between 11am and 9pm. This free event is a state government initiative delivered by festival partner Midsummer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. The Fitzroy Precinct will be transformed into a huge street party with two music stages, activities, community stores and more. For more information, visit midsummer.org.au. Midsummer is a 3CR supporter. Yarra City Arts presents Music in Exile at Fairfield Amphitheatre Sunday, February 6, featuring renowned newer-speaking musician Gordon Koang, hip-hop soul singer Elsie Wameo, and East African sensations Chick Chika. Come along from 5.30 to 8pm for a Sunday evening Yarra staycation with great vibes, dancing and picnics by the Yarra River. For all Yarra staycation events, visit yarracity.vic.com .gov.au slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. As I said, we're going to have a bit of a backgrounder with Alan Griffiths on what's going on in the Ukraine. Here we go. Um, quite fascinating to go through the material that you sent me. Um, I, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure my uh, listeners will be fascinated to get a real perspective on what's going on in the Ukraine. Um, can you uh, begin by giving us? One of the most uh, disturbing elements is how long uh, this process of uh, building a, a framework for a legitimised war has been going on uh, using NATO as a cat's paw. Can you give people an understanding of what's going on there? There's been a long uh, campaign of demonisation of Putin as well as Russia. Now, I'm not on the side of Putin, just like I was not on the side of Saddam Hussein when I campaigned, when we all campaigned against the Iraq war. So we have uh, a superpower, America, which wants to remain the number one superpower and and wants all other countries to uh, basically bow down to America. It doesn't want Russia Russia to rise up. It doesn't want China to uh, rise up. 
And so that's the that's the game at play. The thing is with NATO, their credibility has been seriously uh, tarnished when they got kicked out of Afghanistan. So they uh, really have to prove themselves now. So there's a real push, I believe, within the organisation to try and show that they can stand up to Russia, even though it's a complete folly. No, it, it, it seems like a, a, a strange kind of throwback to the Cold Wars. And, I mean, you're a peace activist. Yes. Uh, let's, look at, let's look at Ukraine. Ukraine is actually divided into two parts, east and west. In the east, you have the uh, ethnically Russian Ukrainian. Uh, in the west, you've got uh, nationalist Ukrainians. They call themselves ethnic Ukrainians. So they speak the Ukrainian language. And so they are ethnic in a way. Well, they claim to have been there longer than the ethnic Russian Ukrainians, and they probably have. But they have always betrayed themselves as the victims of both Russia as well as Nazi Germany, when that's clearly not the case. Which brings us to a very fascinating element to this and which should really worry people a lot. So what you've got is um, a tragic uh, intergenerational memory of uh, the Stalin period of starvation that happened during the 30s. You've got um, the Nazi Germans turning up in 1941 and being um, welcomed. Yes, as welcomed as liberators. What I didn't include in that piece is that when the fleeing uh, communists, they, they were surprised that Germany was, was invading their countries, they uh, committed a heinous crime called the Prisoner Massacre. Instead of taking tens of thousands of prisoners with them to Russia into the heartland of the Soviet Union, they slaughtered them. And in Lvov in Ukraine, a massive city, that. that their, their prison was in the centre of town. So when the when the Nazis uh, liberated Lvov of the communists, fleeing communists, they found uh, rotting bodies in the prison. Now, what what happened next really sowed the seeds of the destruction of Ukrainian Jewry of one and a half million people. The, the many Jews were killed by the fleeing Soviets. But the Nazis saw this as an opportunity to use the Ukrainian nationalists to turn their rage on the, the jury in Lvov. And that's where the Lvov program uh, came from. Three days of slaughter by these Ukrainian nationalists. And this, this, the, the, the Nazis were so uh, uh, amazed by the zealousness of these Ukrainian nationalists that they they concluded that the only effective way they could really get rid of uh, ethnically cleansed Ukraine of the Jews was to have the full input of these Ukrainian nationalists. And they went overboard. There's got, you've got the UPA, which is the Ukrainian Insurgency Army, now venerated as heroes in Ukraine. They were involved in, the, in Hitler's Holocaust and slaughtering up to 300,000 people. They, they tried to cleanse the west of Ukraine where they're based from tens of thousands of Poles, Jews and Russians. 
uh, people will probably in in you know vaguely in, in if they haven't been following what's been going on in the Ukraine realize that there was a uprising or uh, there was a um a revolution revolution of dignity which of course that's what the media wants to portray it the western media but if you look at the detail it was the complete opposite it's it's a it's a farce and it's disgusting that this has been used to as an excuse to continue supporting the so-called democracy it's not a democracy at all one of the uh, ultra-nationalist uh, groups is called the Right Sector, and they got involved in this peaceful demonstration in Kiev. It was mostly it was just pacifists and students. They got involved, and they're, they're vehemently anti-Europe. They got involved to pursue their national revolution, which they did to full effect. And the you may recall that on the streets of Kiev there was global televised footage of protesters being shot. And this was all placed squarely on Yanukovych's government. But what has since transpired, that it has come to light that there were snipers flowing in from Georgia, and their job was to shoot both the policemen as well as the protesters to get a body count of 100 dead. Now, the, the Svoboda political party, which is a, an ultra-nationalist party, Two of their officials were informed by a, an American uh, uh, that they, the West would no longer support Yanukovych if they got up to 100 dead. So clearly what they orchestrated had to be done in ultra-secrecy. And the people who were running the Maidan protests uh, were deeply involved in orchestrating this massacre. The Americans, the commercial interests, since we're talking about particular commercial interests we're talking about, uh, have uh, their anti-EU because that is uh, un not useful to their uh, economic interests or their power interests. Uh, so the um, breaking down of... Uh, the revolution, the 2014 overturning of of uh, the de democratically elected government, uh, has now um, led to uh, what we've got now, really, isn't it? I mean, we get a lot of stuff in the Western media about how uh, this is actually uh, it was a puppet government. It was really just pro-Russian, um, therefore not. A true democracy. However, what we've what they've got now is something that, uh, it, with many of the um, pushes by the United States uh, power interests, are some really quite interesting outcomes, isn't it? You know, so when the 2014 um, breakdown happened or ch change happened, there were some interesting outcomes, weren't there? That you might call quite unsavoury. So basically, it's opened the door to overtly Nazi party, effectively. And uh, there's a part of the official um, Ukrainian armed forces is a group called Azov, which is basically an extremist right-wing Nazi military outfit. Yes, the Azov battalion has their emblem has the 
a Wolfsangle, which a symbol which was used by the uh, invading Nazis as well as the SS and exterminating Russians and Jews and Poles, as well as the Black Sun, another Nazi symbol. And they have that on their emblem. Uh, what is particularly worrying uh, is that the Western media have turned a blind eye pretty much to many hardened Nazis committing terrible atrocities against the ethnic Russian Ukrainians in the West. And um, I believe one of the reasons why we don't know about this is because our prized journalist for free speech is locked up in Belmarsh in England. And that has sent a clear message to the media that either you tell our story, our version of events, or we will come down on you too. The information that is actually gleaned around uh, the um, Azov uh, that is really quite fascinating because the tactics of that particular group mirrors and their relationship with uh, commercial uh, interests of the empire, effectively, are very similar to the connections between um, uh, Muslim um, extremists of particular uh, uh, ilk. Like, it, it really doesn't matter. I mean, for the people who are involved in the ideological framework, one assumes they believe in white supremacy and uh, the yes. uh, the clash of civilizations, as they like to call it. Yes. Um, and uh, they don't mind that uh, it's anti-woman, it's anti-everything. It's anti-everything, effectively. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Um, but it's obviously useful as a tool, I presume, to cause chaos in this way. It is. One of the reasons uh, why it's believed that Ukraine was pushed to the West was for companies like Monsanto to have access to Ukraine's rich earth. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. And its vast resources of growing wheat are highly sought after by GE companies. And just uh, to show you where Russia lies on this, Russia is totally against G GE technology. They've banned it. Oh, they've deemed harmful to the health and environment. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've deemed it harmful to the health environment. So to see Ukraine fall to the West and then plundered by GE companies, it's really sending uh, really strong messages. But but if we look at the conflict as it is being played out at the moment, it's actually there's some actually some other quite hard nosed uh, realities that need to be understood. That um, actually the the American build up of troops and NATO build up of troops, the fact that they're flying um, jet planes across there and that they've uh, got their um, navy fleet in the Black Sea. Uh, if if Ukraine um, becomes a member state of NATO, then the other NATO states are compelled to actually involve themselves in a war, aren't they? If NATO uh, allows Ukraine to join, the thing is, Ukraine has a terrible reputation amongst NATO. They see it as even more corrupt than what it was before Yanukovych was overthrown. And they know it's full of hard Nazis. There, there's a lot of 
internal politics we're not hearing about, but it's Americans who are, who are pushing for uh, this to be resolved as soon as possible. If, if Ukraine joins NATO, Article 5 stipulates that if Ukraine is attacked, then all other member states will come to their aid. And the thing is, the, the center of the new Cold War is right on the uh, default line of Ukraine and Russia. It's right on their border. So if Ukraine were to do what other NATO countries have done and install uh, offensive weapons on their soil facing Russia, particularly nuclear weapons, then that cuts down the time Russia has to react. They'll, they have to ascertain, is this a false attack? Is this a false alarm or is this real? This is Putin's red line that the West must not cross. Now, I think that's everybody's red line because if nuclear weapons are put on Russia's borders and they cannot discern if this is a, a real attack or not, then it puts everybody at risk. There are mechanisms within these this uh, um, within treaties to actually de-escalate this situation, isn't there? There are, but the thing is, once you have uh, a, a movement and inertia happening, it's um, it makes it difficult to slow things down. The America pulled out of two very uh, binding uh, treaties to cut down on nuclear weapons, which sent a shiver through Russia. They needed those. They formed the bedrock of Russia's uh, nuclear uh, policy. Yes. So, in fact, we, that we was part of that was part of the Gorbachev push to yes. remove to yes. stop this Cold War carry on, basically. Yes, that's right. Now. Biden has made moves with uh, Putin to uh, renew one very important treaty to cut down on nuclear weapons. But at the same time, Biden is doing exactly the same as Obama, spending billions on making new bombs, which are even more deadly. So we're having a new arms race, unfortunately. Uh, when the fall of the Berlin Wall happened, everybody breathed a sigh of relief. The minute hand was pushed back on the nuclear doomsday clock. We all believed that nuclear weapons were no longer a threat, but unfortunately they very much are. And they're even more of a threat to us if um, NATO does allow Ukraine to join them. What do you think is going to happen? What are you thinking? What do you think? Well, there's a link to... Uh, thoughts by Scott Ritter, who was a UN weapons inspector during the build-up to the Iraq war. And he believes that it's NATO, Ukraine is years away from joining NATO. And I think he could be right. There is hope there. But unfortunately, the uh, president of Ukraine at the moment, Zelensky, he got voted in promising to enact the Minsk II Accords, which would allow the ethnic Ukrainians federations, a federated state in Ukraine, so they could speak their own Russian language, have their own culture, but still be part of Ukraine. They're not interested in being involved in Russia. 
Now, this will be news to your listeners, but that's where they've been coming from. This agreement was agreed to in Minsk and Belarus. Uh, the U.S. was not involved in these negotiations. Now, Zelensky's uh, election is coming up, and he's high unpopular. And he knows many ethnic Ukrainian nationalists really want to go at the ethnic Ukrainians in uh, Donbass. So that's the real powder keg. If he, if, if he does send the Nazis in again, if he does send his army in again, then that may propel Russia to come to their defense. And then things could unravel from there. Now you masters of war You that build all of the guns You that build the dead planes You that build the big bombs You that hide behind walls You that hide behind the desk Just want you to know That I see through your mask You that never done nothing But build to destroy Play with my world I can see your little toy Put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And turn and run farther Let's fly Like the Judas of old You lie, you deceive World war can be won I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the waters That run down my drain You fasten the triggers For the others to fire And sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion 
the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and buried in the mud. Well, that's the worst fear that can never be hurled. Bring children into the world. Threaten in my baby, unborn and unnamed. Oh, you ain't worth the blood that runs in your. I know to talk out of turn. You might say that I'm young. You might say I'm unlearned. But there's one thing I know. Though I'm younger than you, even Jesus would never forgive what you do. Let me ask you one question: Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find when your death takes its toll. All the money you made. Will never buy back your soul. Well, that's the worst fear that can never be heard. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we're going to move on to my chat with uh, uh, a fantastic uh, person, Nancy McLean. Uh, she's written this fantastic book called Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. And uh, let's proceed because it's a cracker. Thank you very much for talking to me. I was absolutely oh, engrossed by your book. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, much congratulations for the depth of uh, work. I mean, you've gone out of your way to make a book that's uh, easily accessible to the general public, but it's quite clear that the level of research is uh, mammoth. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> you see my battle scars. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Now, but it, it, what's important is that uh, what's going on in countries like the US, as we uh, are seeing right at the moment with the attacks on uh, voting rights, right. uh, are also being experienced in places like Australia. So yes. uh, we're talking about uh, what is actually fundamentally attacks on democracy, but they're not a scattergun effect, are they? Your research has shown that uh, actually this has been a deliberate step-by-step approach to undermining democracy and majority rule. And you've found a particular character, James McGill Buchanan, rather uh, who precedes the Chicago School of Economics uh, neoliberal approach. It's got, it goes- well, kind of co coterminous with it. And he actually got his degree at Chicago, um, but, but considered himself very different from the later Chicago figures like Friedman. Yeah, okay, so it's quite clear that it's got a, a, a south-north complexion in the U.S. Uh -huh. con context. So can you explain yes. to my listeners where that comes from? Because it's important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I did not set out to uh, find the story <laughs> that I told. I was actually pursuing a different story. So if your listeners have never heard of James McGill Buchanan, they should not um, uh, uh, worry about that because not many people have outside of the academic disciplines. He worked in economics and political science and uh, to some degree uh, constitutional law um, and also uh, the conservative, or I should say the libertarians slash conservative uh, think tank and uh, operational milieu. He was somebody who kind of deliberately seemed to like to operate more in the shadows than in the public. He didn't have Milton Friedman's gifts of um, glibness or, you know, comfort in the limelight. You know, he wasn't um, an especially, he was a clear writer, but you'd never say he was, he was a great writer. Um, and uh, it was not a kind of mediagenic personality, but he, uh, had a very significant impact, particularly on the way that uh, many thought about democracy and on what's happening to democracy now. So the reason there's a significant South-North um, connection to this is that he spent most of his life working uh, in Virginia, his his scholarly life working in Virginia. He was actually born in uh, Tennessee to a farm family in Tennessee in the uh, during the Depression. Um, but he became engaged with politics after he moved to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville um, in 1956. And that was at the peak of what was called massive resistance to the Brown versus Board of Education decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, which mandated um, the end of uh, uh, legally sponsored segregation in schools. And he was part of a then small group of people, economists and such on the uh, the neoliberal right who um, uh, opposed that decision as they opposed the New Deal that they believed it came out of and the CIO and the whole kind of transformation of uh, the federal government to be more responsive to the people over the course of the 20th century. Um, so, uh, yeah, so he ended up in, in kind of alliance with the segregationist forces in Virginia that were trying to shift public monies uh, from public schools to private schools that would be beyond the reach of the court. And that's how I first got on his trail. And then I continued to pursue it. And it led in directions that I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that early sort of uh, 
anti-desegregation of schools is really important because it's an ideological framework that uh, is embedded in the entire focus of what turns out to be, um, as it grows, uh, basically uh, an approach that undermines the concept of democ uh, uh, majority rule and the acceptance mm -hmm. of an oligarchy yeah, uh, that uh, a f a freedom equals a very small group of people having control over the all public assets and that inequality is not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it took me a while to wrap my mind around um, this way of thinking about the world because it was so antithetical to the way that I think about it. Um, and, you know, I work on the history of social movements. I've looked at labor, civil rights and women's movements, you know, um, uh, anyway, it, movements that do not think <laughs> in the way that these folks think. And so uh, one of the elements that I had to um, wrap my mind around was a defense of minority rights <laughs> in this tradition. But the minority, I realized the minorities that he was, uh, Buchanan and his his colleagues were concerned about were never the ones that I would think of, <laughs> you know, like LGBT people or African-Americans in the South or, you know, Mexican-Americans or Jewish or, you know, other, other groups or political dissenters. They were really, when they would talk about um, the oppression of the minority by the majority, they were talking about the very wealthy and about corporations who felt, you know, whose leaders felt oppressed by regulation uh, or by uh, taxation, the levels of taxation that prevailed at mid-century. So, um, yeah, so it was a very distinctive uh, tradition, but that ended up, you know, essentially um, uh creating the conditions for oligarchy to reign and doing that, you know, advocating those kinds of policies that would enable that not only in the U.S., but transnationally. So it's kind of no wonder that you're seeing some of this in Australia and that others are seeing uh, the impacts elsewhere, because this was really a transnational school of thought that is now um, being acted on by a transnational network of think tanks, um, many of which are, uh, you know, have affiliates in, in Australia and other places, such as the Institute for uh, Public Affairs in, in Australia that I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you've dealt with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, the uh, interesting thing about this, of course, is that it's not, as I said, a scattergun effect. It's step by step. And so Buchanan yes. is an academic. And he, uh, if you look at him as you do, he produces particular uh, tomes that tap the ball into particular directions, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Very important mm -hmm. to underpinning, using academia to uh, underpin a concept of scientific economy. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that was another thing that was really fascinating is to see the difference between the public presentation uh, of Buchanan and of his various centers at these ironically public universities uh, in, in Virginia. He was at three different ones over the years. Um, and as you say, it was very much a presentation that we are the scientists, we are engaged in realism, the other people are the romantics, etc. But in the private papers um, uh, that I was 
was able to go through, I saw him very much appealing to corporate donors saying, you know, we have the best kind of the best case out there because other people are just making the case for markets, which is not always persuasive to people, but we're making the case that you shouldn't trust government um, and that government can't be relied upon, et cetera. And we think that's ultimately kind of the trumping uh, case. And also the, the letters that they would write that he and others would write their letters for recommendation were always had some ideological element, which is really quite shocking because it's not, you know, it's not the normal practice um, in higher education. So these enterprises were very, very much political from the outset. And so they really also give us a window into uh, something that people often today refer to as the corporate university. Um, and you can see this in his centers beginning in the uh, second half of the 1950s forward. They were always uh, supported by private pretty arch right wing corporate money of the kind that in in fact, the same funder supported uh, Buchanan's first five years in Virginia that supported uh, the Mont Pelerin Society, getting Americans to go to the meetings of this, you know, original kind of neoliberal thought collective, some people have said, you know, whose meetings were always in Europe in the early years and also paid for the salaries of figures like uh, Friedrich Hayek um, at Chicago and Ludwig von Mises in New York. So deeply, deeply ideological funders who wanted kind of particular research programs and outcomes and in fact got them. Yeah, well, the uh, Mont Pirlin, Switzerland, and in fact, they're called the Austrian thinkers, aren't they? Yeah, they spoke of Austrian economics, which is is very interesting. There's another um, good book on that subject saying that that was really in a lot of ways that the the framing of Austrian economics was something Charles Koch and his funding kind of did, because in the real world of Austrian economics, they were varied traditions and different kinds of economists, but they stamped particular figures, you know, above all the best known being um, Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises as Austrian economics and kind of created a a brand product, if you will, that was um, exceedingly hostile to government action uh, on, you know, in response to the will of the people, which they referred to as collectivism and saw as a real, real problem emerging over the 20th century. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it's fascinating, isn't it, that uh, at a certain point, uh, Buchanan actually articulates the notion that uh, they've got specific aims which is to basically allow very rich people to have uh, and corporations to have um, complete freedom, carte blanche, no regulation, that uh, government's only function is to uh, deal with uh, the military and defence and uh, public order. That's the only function that it has. Um, uh, But... He was finding it difficult, they were finding it difficult to get their politicians into particular governments. And so he pinpoints the notion that uh, you can't trust politicians because they're only self-interested. Now, this is a particularly, this isn't just a, a notion, this is actually a plank of their thoughts, isn't it? That individuals are just completely um, out for themselves. 
Yeah, so that was just, you know, a kind of core element of what they called public choice economics was to apply, you know, the notion of economic man to political actors and say they were only interested in their self, uh, you know, in, in, in self-interest, not in the public good, as they said. Now, one irony of that is that they saw that elected officials wanted to get reelected. So one thing they would do is popular things that these folks didn't approve of. Which is so actually a fantastic element to of democracy it is the exactly. power lever of democracy right you know but if you wanted to be popular you know you would do things like you know providing social security right providing retirement um security you know acting on climate change uh you know restraining uh fossil fuel extraction um uh providing you know a good education for people at all you know age levels etc so there's all these things that are popular but they cost money and they lead to taxation and to tax transfers which these folks saw as illegitimate again going back to that notion of minority rights and it's probably also important to understand that they um, ideologically just refused to see coercion in the economy. They only saw coercion in government, Um, you know, so government could make you do things like pay taxes. But they would say, you know, as 19th century, you know, classical liberals did, well, you know, if I offer you a job for 36 cents an hour, and there's no other jobs around, and you you can take my job or leave it. (laughs) But they don't see coercion in something like that, right, in in offering terms of employment that are um, uh, would make it impossible to sustain human life like that's because you have the right to refuse that contract. So so again, you know, you, you, I think understanding the um, the uh, a priori assumptions that are in play here is is helpful. Yeah. And so this puts into perspective the, uh, how it's quite clear that uh, privatisation, no taxes for corporation, uh, the subversion of law and su- the pre- uh, Supreme Court to their mm. perspective, um, the no public schools uh, mm-hmm. using public money for private schools but have no control over their curriculum. Right. which is an oxymoron, actually. If you pay for something in their world, then you should have control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, um, the uh, attacks on public universities uh, and uh, the attacks on social security systems become quite clear why this is happening, why why this should be so, because this is what these this small group of oligarchs actually believe is freedom. Yeah, but I think it's also important that is that is all true, but I think it's also important to realize that they are these are smart actors and some of what they're saying, you know, for you and I, it's hair raising, right? And I'm sure for many of your listeners who are thinking, well, you know, people who have ideas like that can't possibly get elected on those ideas, you know, so we're safe from that. So I think it's also important um, for people to understand the stealth element of all this. And that's, you know, part of the subtitle um, of my book. Um, and And that piece is crucial because these, you know, the smartest of these actors, people like James Buchanan or Charles Koch, you know, who becomes a key funder, the key funder of all of this. Um, It's very smart individuals. um, And it didn't take long for them to realize that people were never going to vote for the 
values that they stood for or the agenda that they wanted to see implemented. And, you know, that became clear to different people in different times and ways, but certainly for Buchanan, it became clear with Social Security privatization uh, in the 1980s when they tried to do that. And instead of, he actually has language that says, you know, that that Social Security uh, was popular, you know, among men and women, old and young, black, brown and and uh, and white, north and south, east and west. You, you just went through all the differences. Um, and instead of saying, well, golly, then it must be a pretty great program and we should make sure we do everything we can to, you know, to to um, to keep it and in, in, in let it thrive. No, he said. So if you want to get rid of it, which they did, they wanted to, you know, go to private accounts, individual accounts, um, you would have to do, you'd have to, he doesn't say stealth, but I, I call it crab walking, you know, so he, he gave a multi-step program to say, well, first you have to say it's not solvent, right? So to make people, um, you know, who are paying in, but not yet receiving benefits feel like, well, God, it's not going to be there for me. Why should I pay into it? Right. Then um, he also suggested that you pay off the existing claimants. So the older people who would be the most focused on the health of the program, you get them out of the fight. Right? Yeah. You <laughs> grandfather it. They, what yeah. we call it so grandfathering it yeah yeah and then uh he also talked about um basically finding strategies to split up the coalition that was in support of this program including by turning uh young people against yeah. social security recipients which is so interesting and i think that's important too so this you know this is in no way conservative in the way that most of us would think about it like to make grandma and grandpa sound like parasites which is exactly what he did in the language that he used of, of parasites for these public programs you know that that is really radical right stuff right it's not you know well it's it's most- right center stage in australia at the moment um yes yeah uh, framed as rights concerned to reform the program to protect it because without yeah. doing it, uh, it will be bankrupt. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's a lot of um, disinformation that's involved in this political project, you know, on multiple uh, uh, issues. So Social Security, of course, they also worked with the tobacco companies um, in the 1980s and 90s when they were facing attacks for the public health impacts of, of tobacco. And they did a lot of work on contract to help their public image um, and to support them uh, in Congress and in the states. And then similar. Uh, they moved on to the fossil fuel industry and defending fossil fuels in Coke Industries, um, uh, which is, you know, Charles Koch's, you know, he's one of the richest men in the world and has one of the largest privately held companies in the world. And its core base was in fossil fuels. So for them, you know, democracy was actually kind of an existential threat to their profit source. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally still the case in this country today. This is 3CR. 
You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're listening to a chat I had with uh, the wonderful Nancy McLean who has written a book called Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. It's available at Scribe. Um, Before we listen to the last part of that chat, um, it it might be uh, interesting to remind people that uh, this group of uh, uh, people uh, who formed the... uh, uh, coalition to destroy democracy and this particular focus on this man called uh, James McGill Buchanan. Uh, James McGill Buchanan was a economic advisor to Pinochet in Chile. In Chile and, and this group of people still maintain that uh, Pinochet's Chile is a poster child for their views and economic process. Just let that sink in. (laughs) Anyway, this is the last part of my chat. You call it a fifth column. You uh, pontificate that this is actually, this movement is a fifth column and that uh, they have actually, uh, with Coke, uh, rivers of gold have been running since the 1970s and they've been uh, tilling their boat through the waters uh, to this final result. They must have been quite amazed when Trump, who's a complete opportunist, uh, Mm -hmm. ran away with their ball for a moment. Yeah, they were. You know, there definitely was some surprise there, but they very quickly accommodated to that. Mm. You know, he did not have, um, you know, roots in the established, you know, Republican Party. He didn't have people around him. He didn't even expect to be elected, as we now know. You know, so he was sort of in a state of shock, but it was they just did this kind of surround sound operation. And before you knew it, I I forget what the exact figures are. It's been been a minute, but um, something like 40 or more percent of his senior officials were from the Coke network, including key people like Vice President Mike Pence, his um, liaison to Congress, Mark Short, you know, in the later days, Mark Meadows, um, uh, who was his chief of staff, who had been the head of the Freedom Caucus in the U.S. House, um, Betsy DeVos, you know, you just go through the list. And so many of these people, Mike Pompeo, who was Secretary of State, they used to call him the the, um, congressman from Coke. He was from Kansas, where Coke Industries is based. So they they very quickly um, uh, became central to that administration and got through many things that they wanted, um, including the immediate pullout from the uh, Paris Climate Accords. That was one of the first things that Trump did um, and uh, stopping any action on the climate, really decimating the Environmental Protection uh, Agency. They pushed through a tax um, bonanza for uh, corporations and wealthier earners. Um, they, uh, they decimated a lot of labor law. And of course, they got the three Supreme Court uh, justices seated who will carry um, an agenda that is extremely pro-corporate uh, and to the right of 90% of the American people, including Republicans. Um, so, Well, actually, yeah, that's yeah, interesting. You should talk about the Republicans because part of this whole process was the taking over of the Republican Party, wasn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so Buchanan... A similar um, thing happened here in the Liberal Party, where they got rid of all the small-hour liberals. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's interesting, too. So in the U.S., the phrase that they would use is rhinos, Republicans in name only. And basically, it was like an occupying army of people who weren't from the Republican Party. They, you know, the core of these guys were hardcore libertarians. Um, but they, you know, pushed this agenda that said you're a Republican in name only if you raise taxes, act on the climate, compromise with Democrats in any way. And so what they did is draw moderates from the party and they did it in a in a very you know again a very shrewd way um they activated the the party base the people that are now you know the maga faction of the republican party they had been the tea party uh people um but they uh so they've fed a lot of red meat to the base you know through media like fox news and 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 uh such but then the donors were the key element too. the donors would put in big money for a primary challenge to any Republican who didn't toe the line. And they actually boasted about that at donor events. Um, and I quote uh, one of the key people uh, in the book who, who spoke of this as the accountability play, our secret sauce, so to speak, meaning that pincer action between the donors uh, and the base. And through that, they have transformed the Republican Party beyond recognition. I mean, there is more discipline in the Republican Party today in the U.S., in Congress, and in many state houses than the um, Bolshevik Party under Stalin. You know, I mean, they, they just, they're terrified to um, fall out with the donors and with the base and will leave office rather than face election if the don't, you know, if things have turned against them. So you see that now too with, uh, I mean, I'm, I've been, I, when I've been in Australia, I've been a couple times because um, there was a book publisher there, Scribe, that picked up the book and I did some book tours and I was so impressed by how much Australians knew about American politics and how closely they follow things. Um, but I don't know if your listeners would know Liz Cheney, who's one of the only Republicans who stood up to Trump. Um, and she's actually on this um, House Select Committee to investigate the insurrection of January 6th and Trump's attempted coup. Where and he should be her, in jail, actually. Yes. Um, but her home party in uh, uh, um Wyoming has, 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 you know, publicly condemned her. She's facing a big primary challenge. So she's probably not going to be reelected. And, uh, and the other person who serves on that, the only other Republican who serves on that committee has already said he's not going to run again. It brings to mind a thing that my daughter said to me, looking at the American scene, she expected there to be a civil war. <laughs> You know, there's more and more writing about that. There's a very good book that I just read. Um, I think it's called How Civil Wars Start, uh, but by a political scientist, very, very smart, um, thoughtful scholar who has studied civil wars, you know, on on other continents and, you know, has a number and there are a number of things that they look for routinely. <laughs> and those, you know, those those alarms are being set in the U.S. So, no, it is it is uh, it is very frightening. Yeah, very frightening. Uh, the uh, part of their stealth uh, approach, which is important to me, is being a person who likes uh, was brought up Catholic and his father was a lawyer, double uh -huh. whammy um, uh, structures, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> order, you know, order uh, is the uh, – subversion of the legal system and the uh, 
a very uh, and the academic system and the uh, um, not just the political system and the uh, use of the media. But that thing about taking over the legal system and then misusing legislative process to get a particular result. This is also happening in Australia. It's yeah. uh, particularly focused on unions, for example, that kind of stuff. Uh, anyway, uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's funny when you started with being raised a Catholic, I thought you were going to go in a different direction, but there's really um, almost three boxes there that we could open up and go into. And one is that this enterprise would never um, be able to achieve anything through the political system had they not made uh, strategic alliances with the religious right and the entrepreneurs of the American religious right. And they're um, atheists, so they don't care. That This is how... Yeah. Uh, um, callous and cynical they are. Yeah, I mean that so many of the libertarians, yes, were vehemently, you know, uh, anti anti church and anti clerical, uh, Buchanan in included. Um, but yeah, so they have been uh, extremely savvy in tapping that huge base of voters, and those, you know, evangelical white evangelical voters are the core basis of the Republican Party now. They're the core basis uh, of uh, support for Trump. And one of the things that I realized too is that I, you know, I don't know if they thought this at the outset. I mean, I've never seen, you know, inside communications about this, or if it was just a fortuitous result. But, you know, white evangelical Christians believe in creationism, right? They don't believe in evolution. And so you had people who were already primed to not believe science, to be suspicious of science um, as a constituency. And that was cultivated, as I mentioned earlier, with the um, tobacco industry, propaganda um, in particularly in the, the 1980s and 90s and then of course um, the fossil fuel um, uh, you know stuff added to that so and so that's you know so we have the religious box there um, and P and and through the media we could jump to the media now they have the believers and followers who watch Fox News are basically um, not watching a news service, but uh, an identity creation, consolidation and provocation enterprise. So there are really great um, media scholars and communication scholars who have really tracked this stuff, done really, really interesting um, uh, uh scientific and statistical um, uh, uh, studies of, of how how conservative media works, but basically they've come to the conclusion that this is, especially with Fox, it's like a nonstop diet of the liberals hate you, they're ruining your institutions, they're taking your country, they spit on your faith, they blah, 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 they're going to ruin your kid, you know, on and on and on and on. Um, and then the counter is that you must fight them, right? You must be in fight or flight mode. So people don't even think clearly, you know, if you get really steeped in this stuff. So, so the media piece is really crucial. And then you also touched on another uh, important piece, which is um, schools and higher education. So this Coke network in the US, and again, you know, it's not just them, like they work through so many uh, different kind of um, front groups and specialty groups of different kinds. So there's literally hundreds. I mean, and they, they're constantly reinventing them and creating what one uh, person 
person who works against this network calls um, human shields, you know, so you don't actually see the donors and they have all the think tanks and things like that, but they've also done major investing in um, higher education. So there are over 300 campuses now in the U.S. that are getting funding from the Charles Koch Foundation alone. Um, There are centers at many universities where they have faculty and students and the money just flows, you know, to bring people into this, to put to put them into career pipelines. So they'll go from higher education into, say, the Heritage Foundation or the Federalist Society or the State Policy Network, you know, or any of these these other operations. And the campus bases also work closely with these other, you know, parts of the apparatus to uh, come up with ideas for policies that they can workshop, again, to supply the young talent that they didn't have uh, in the old days and to run defense for when they're criticized um, or exposed. So it is really a quite elaborate, uh, integrated strategy um, that has been decades in the making. And, you know, we're seeing the consequences of it all now. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. That's pretty hair-raising stuff, isn't it? Uh, yes, and, uh, you know, I did a bit of a partial interest. Oh, g'day to everybody. So that first. Um, uh, but, yeah, I do take a bit of a partial interest in uh, what's going on in the United States uh, and uh, particularly following some uh, some of the serious news information that is prepared by various people in the left. Uh, if your listeners are not on to it, Portside is an excellent source. And, uh, yeah, so I thought... I had caught the last half of that discussion, and I think uh, uh, there are some real insights there for us, which I might touch on a little bit in a moment, because I'm going to say one or two very quick things about how we understand the crises that are happening uh, in our lives, in, uh, uh, in societies right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, a quotable quote, of course, was uh, when uh, Nancy said that uh, they they throw red meat to the political base, <laughs> which is uh, um, a, a set up a, 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 an explosion of thoughts. <laughs> um, well, yes, and that's in the, sort of, in the media management of things, and that's how it's talked about uh, a lot. I mean, there is a lot of media management that the people who own and control the system have to do because it's, it's so riven with very dangerous contradictions for uh, the great mass of the people. And uh, they, the, the job of persuading the great mass of the people to not change the system is a daily task. And uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, that's where... I'm not sure whether I sort of quite go with the red meat metaphor, but, uh, um, you know, I understand the concept. I think today, last time we talked, Annie, just a week ago, was just what a dud uh, and also a fraud uh, the Morrison government's focus on manufacturing is all about. And the failure for Australian-based, for for the supply of Australian-manufactured rats was our focal point to be able to prove that, uh, in fact, uh, Morrison had engaged in a great big con 18 months or so ago and before in pretending that uh, he was going to revitalise Australian manufacturing. And I want to pick up on that again, but um, 
uh, and and include in that some comments about uh, Anthony Albanese's speech at the beginning of this week, uh, which was his opening salvo in 2022, uh, leading into the election campaign, of course. Um, But before getting to that, just a couple of things about the sort of backdrop to it all. Um, Because I think that as we look at all of the major parties and those who are going to be, in one way or another, positive and negative, uh, disruptive in the next six months or so at least, Uh, and there, of course, I'm talking about Palmer's party, and I'm also talking, although in a totally different way, about the Greens, we have to ask ourselves, is what they are offering as an alternative to what we have now in terms of parliamentary government, is it going to deal with the major crises of our time? Will they make those crises go away? And so we have to sort of say, well, what are those crises and how are they being talked about? So these are the sort of lodestones, if you like, when we look at what's going on and how those of us who want something strong to deal with these crises uh, can assess what is being proposed. So what are the crises? Well, in brief, uh, we have a climate crisis, obviously. Yeah. This, in a certain sense, it's, a, it's the most profound of the existential crises. And all of these interact with each other. The second one, of course, is in public health in terms of the ongoing inability of governments globally and at the national level to really grapple with this current pandemic. Well, to see, see that it's uh, important. Pardon? Oh, the the public no health is important as, as something other than a money spinner. Yeah, and it rises. The interaction, of course, with climate is arises out of the way in which capitalism uh, expands into the natural world. The third aspect, of course, is the economy in general, and uh, uh, both climate and public health are a part of that. In some ways, they're products of it, but they actually also, in turn, make uh, the economic fragility of the system putting aside any argument we might have. Yeah, apparent. It makes it apparent. It's certainly fragile and it's desperately... It is a crisis for 90% of the population. The 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 fourth and fifth ones relate to parliamentary democracy or what Stan Grant in his writing recently is talking about as liberal democracy. There is a crisis of confidence in parliamentary democracy in its various forms around the world, including in Australia. And finally, there's a crisis in human relations captured in the way in which racism and sexism uh, uh, and misogyny uh, penetrate and weave their way through uh, uh, all of the other four crises. Now, well, it's a tool. Pardon? Uh, uh, racism and misogyny, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, misogyny is a, it's a tool. There, It's a tool. But uh, for people who hold it dear like a Linus blanket, um, it is seen to be a pivotal part of uh, the uh, chasm of cultural uh, civilization that's going on, you know, that uh, white men should be in charge of everything. There's a certain limited sense in which it's a tool, but I think it is actually more profound than that. And 
because it has a lineage that predates um, the dominant class formation, the exploitation yeah, yeah, of yeah. the majority by a minority, uh, which in the form we have these days, of course, is not much different from when it started but about 250 years ago. Yeah, yeah, but this is a much deeper yeah. sort of uh, malaise. Yeah, so those five crises, we, we, we've got to say, what is the next government going to do that would actually begin to uh, reduce their impact as crises and eventually defeat them as a crisis? Yeah. Now, the next point I want to go to before going specifically to Albo's speech, because this touches upon the emergence of the uh, the ultra-right, the neo, the new emerging forms of fascism as they manifest themselves in Australia around uh, the demonstrations against um, lockdowns and restrictions and vaccination requirements. Um, the... Uh, Recently, just just a few days ago, the World Economic Forum, which is the annual gathering of big business and those who are willing to work with them, the World Economic Forum or the Davos Forum, yeah, yeah. goes by both names, they had their most recent gathering. And interestingly... Uh, it was. They discussed a major report they had conducted on the major risks in the global and uh, and national context, and uh, they they redefined the crises as risks. <laughs> they tidy language. They tidy language. They put on their um, nice face. Go on. Now the World Economic Forum. Those of us who have been looking at what it's been up to since the late 1990s, uh, have understood it as this gathering point in which the most powerful in the capitalist system get together. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really important meeting. And it's it's fantastic that it should be called the Davros Forum because Davros, of course, is one of the key uh, villains on Doctor Who. But go on. Yeah, yeah, because they think that they've got, uh, they're very clear thinkers. So where everyone else is running around saying the Titanic's sinking, they're strategizing about how they can make money out of it. So, yeah, well, how to, how to maintain their control. Their control, yeah. Profit-making system, that's right. That's right. Now, interestingly, the ultra-right grab hold of the Davos Forum as an example of the conspiracy theory yeah. that is the basis of their action. Now, I think there's an important point to make here about the difference with how the left, if you like, has worked out just how destructive the thinkers in the Davos Forum really are relative to how the new ultra-right is doing so. No, the the ultra-right wants to take over their seats. They want the seats. They want the Davos Forum's seats. Capitalism, it creates so many, 
in solving its own problems, it creates new massive ones. It's a problem with the order of the system. That's right. The the ultra-right look at those crises and they therefore come to a different conclusion about Davos, that it's a conspiracy. And they see disorder. And they see disorder because it disturbed what they had somehow or other worked out to be the stability and security and quietitude of their past. And so their problem, they don't see it as the wrong order. They say it is they see it as disorder. And the solution for them is not a change in the system, but a turn to a heroic set of leaders oh my God. who are Mussolini-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on. It's so just this rerun of bullshit, basically. So they, their solution is found in a technocratic solution. They wouldn't yeah, use yeah. that word. No. But it's found in some sort of heroic figure who would restore the old order. Yeah, yeah, like Mengler and Nosferatu. <laughs> it's really, really... impact the very order that is creating the crisis. So then we... So, this, so the crises, they are champions. In fact, the ultra-right are champions of the continuation of crises even though they latch on to very real, some of the very real crises. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. In the Australian context, uh, the, the whole thing about manufacturing is a focal point at which those, that part of the working class that is turning to uh, the ultra-right uh, can be won back. Because one of the things they say is that the conspiracy—it's been a conspiracy that's taken away Australian-based manufacturing. And of course, it's not a conspiracy that's done that. Although there may well have been conspiratorial acts within the whole process, it's not a conspiracy that's done that. It's been how the capitalist system has been managed by its champions that has brought that on. The ultralight leaves those champions who, who destroy, who have been undermining manufacturing, they leave those people in place. Whereas we have to look at the future, that is, those who really want a real solution to the crisis have to look at a future in which the, the order is disrupted and we have the foundations of a new democratic and socialist approach to not just manufacturing, but other things. And manufacturing is critical for both public health into the future, and it's also critical because of climate change. Before you go on, um, because we've only got a limited amount of time, tie this up with uh, Elbow's speech. Yes, well, that's the very next point. You see, Elbow's speech is Elbow's direction as the major party in any future alternative government, is it going to solve the crisis? In my view, it's inadequate for that purpose. But where it is so important is that what he is proposing does provide a new the opportunity for new momentum to do more profound things 
about not just manufacturing but other things. So, for example, when it comes to parliamentary democracy, he is at the forefront in finding a change to the Constitution that provides a new base of power for our First Nations people. Mm. And just the impact, if he is successful in leading that process in a parliamentary sense, the real leadership comes from out of our First Nations people's organisations. That's where the real leadership on that is coming. And anyone who has studied the way in which they have put together the Hilderu Statement, mm. they have demonstrated the potentiality of a far more profound and democratic democracy than the one we have now. Yeah, yeah. Now, Albo, in his speech, he's talking about uh, the establishment of a constitutionally based voice. Yeah. Then that that is a great foundation for ongoing, ongoing transformation of how democracy works in Australia, so that there is more democracy happening. This also should have a profound effect on uh, environment. I think so too. The second thing is when it does get to things like uh, manufacturing. And here again, I think, is it adequate? Is what he is proposing is adequate? The answer is no, and it's also got its own contradictions. And Australian-based manufacturing that he has, in words at least, been very explicit about, far more powerfully than Morrison. One of the contradictions there, of course, is that the trade policy run by the ALP in the past has been a perfect example of neoliberalism. In other words, it's been a very free trade agenda. And, of course, when we think about medical products, it was Keating's ALP that privatised the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories Mm. so that nowadays that particular operation, and this is, is, you know, there's some terrific work done on this by John Quiggan and through the Australia Institute, the current CSL privatised, privately owned, has 500 times the value of what it did when Keating sold it. Well, of course. I mean, the whole idea of selling off public assets... Yeah, the whole idea of selling off public assets is just a crock. I mean, it just... When we look at Albo's speech, we do it with our eyes wide open. but But we can see that is arising out of it. There is the potentiality for a genuine... Parties saying 
about these issues. We need a manufacturing industry in Australia because it has so many positive implications for uh, for the majority of the population, including the capacity to make all of the things in a renewable way that are needed as renewable products into the future to deal with climate change. Uh, so many commodities that are going to have to be produced in a renewable way, and so many of those commodities are going to have to be renewable in themselves. They're going to have to actually be reducing the impact of climate change, reversing it over the next 20 or 30 years. To sum up, the ALBO speech is qualitatively better than what is on offer at the moment, but it's not adequate for what he is proposing is not adequate to tackle the crises, but it offers a better foundation for a movement that is willing to do so. Okay, great. Um, thank you very much for doing this uh, work for us. Um, uh, looking at uh, how uh, things are going, uh, how the pots are boiling in this uh, day and age in politics. Uh, do you think May the 7th will be the election date? Uh, my hunch is it's going to be May, but, you know... <laughs> yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I always get those guesses wrong. <laughs> I think, I think it really doesn't matter so much... Uh, uh, because um, it's, oh, I don't know, maybe it does, I don't know. Anyway, thanks very much, Don, for uh, spending some time but with us this the, morning. Whenever the election happens, those of us who are awake up to the fact that the ALP is a necessity, but in, at the same time is inadequate, for the crisis, that is, then we have to gird our lines, lines to be much tougher, much clearer, much stronger afterwards yeah. and put the pressure on the new government in a constructive way that protects it against a right-wing recovery. We, can't have, we cannot afford a single term of a non-Liberal Party government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, it, it seems to me that the Liberals need to pull their socks up. I mean, if there were genuine Liberals out there, they should actually take back their... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should take back their, their political party because at the moment, it's a shame job. To, to, to hone in there... No, we have to go, we have to go. The Labor Party must get its act together. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Don. All the best. Yeah, yeah, we really have to go. Um, uh, that's it for Solidarity with Breakfast this morning and uh, we're going to go out with a, a great song by Dixie Franklin called Get a Real Job. One, two, three, four. Professional and something clever that we can tell the relatives. Climb that ladder, 
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.